it would be amazing if all Christians saw the theological implications behind this, but more importantly, the theological implications around uh, racism, you know, and, and yet we, we continue to see denominations that instead of owning the past, uh, they continue to resist it and to be blind to it, which, you know, is a microcosm of the rest of the United States. You know, an honest assessment of our past helps us see the reality of our present. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary a historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. George Yancey. He's a professor at the Institute for Studies of Religion at Baylor University, authoring several books, including Beyond Racial Gridlock, Transcending Racial Barriers, and One Faith No Longer. He's a sociologist specializing in race, ethnicity, and religion. Dr. Yancey, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me. Well, how are things in the great state of Texas today? Today, the weather is beautiful. So, the, few, uh, the few months so you got. <laughs> in a few months, it'll be torture. <laughs> I've been on Baylor's campus before in the middle of some of those hot months and thought to myself, you know, that river down there is awfully tempting to jump into cool down right Yes, now. <laughs> it does get very hot. Yeah. Well, how have things been for you this academic year? I know this is uh, still a bit of a transition as we're at this place in the pandemic and it's changed so much about how yeah. higher education has been approached, but how have things been for you? Well, it's been good. Uh, for the first time since I've been at Baylor, I saw the, uh, 
the faces of my undergraduate students. So that was always nice. Uh, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that. There is something to seeing your students' faces when you teach that I think is important. Well, um, in between the pandemic and, and teaching, uh, you've been busy writing. Uh, you've produced uh, a lot of good books in the last couple of years. And of course, you've got a new one out. Beyond Racial Division, this book is an invitation to rethink the way that we think, speak, and interact together, beginning with re-examining our assumptions about the right way of, of doing things. Uh, you wrote, I'm going to offer a solution to the racial problem before us, but no matter how good my approach, I must also recognize that I'm part of the problem. I live in a racialized society, and I cannot escape the effects of that society. Take us uh, into kind of the conception of this book and this particular approach you wanted to have of this, you know, this big, uh, big subject and big issue within our country. Yeah, so my approach is that we have been trying to tackle race a certain way, and we've not really made, any, I would say, we've not really made any real progress since the 1960s and 70s and 80s, when uh, when obviously we got all the civil rights legislation to deal with the, the pressing problem of that time, which was that people of color were basically seen as, as being less than human. Since that time, have we really made progress? And I don't think so. And, and so we must not be doing something right. And what I see is that, uh, that the way we've approached racial issues has actually exacerbated the hostilities. I remember when Obama was elected president, now, I'm not saying he's a good president, a bad president, I like everything he does, hate everything he does, anything like that. But he's the first black president. And for many people, they thought this is a watershed moment, that this is going to improve. I mean, the talk, there was talk, our race is going to improve because African Americans, and African Americans can be like the president of the United States. If anything, the toxicity of our race relations has increased since Obama's been elected president, not decreased. So I'm arguing that there's, there is a better way. Uh, you know, it's, it's influenced by my faith, but you don't have to be a Christian in order to implement these plans, but there is a better way, a way we can actually improve race relations rather than going back and forth at each other as what we've seen has been done over the past decades. It's fascinating you brought up, um, you know, President Obama's um, election. You know, for a lot of people um that didn't want to come to terms with america's continued systemic racism the thought was oh, well, aha here we go we're past racism we've we've elected a, a black president and yet as you said it is it's kind of escalated and elevated the racial tension within america and yet people still don't want to be honest about that so so why is it that on one hand people try to recognize that we're past this race issue, quote unquote. And on the other hand, we're continuing to see even more conversation, even more tension within our communities. You know, in some ways, maybe Obama being elected president really helped us to clarify just how deep the problem was. Because under normal circumstances, you think that really would help race relations. Kennedy being elected president helped relations with the Irish and Catholics with the rest of the country. But it, but it really didn't, and if anything, it made it worse. And what I would say is that since my Beyond Russia Gridlock book, uh, I see things crystallized into what I will really call right now a colorblind anti-racism world, where people feel like they have to adopt a more colorblind perspective, which is, I'm going to ignore race. Race does not exist. 
I'm going to treat everyone the exact same way, regardless of race. And that's how I'm going to solve racial problems versus anti-racism. Now, I think a lot of your audience knows what I mean by anti-racism because I'm guessing a lot of your audience has either read or heard of or knows the, the premise of books such as White Fragility, White Fragility, Me and White Supremacy, How to Be an Anti-Racist, things of this nature. Uh, and I can explain anti-racism further if people want to, but I think people know what we mean when we talk about anti-racism. And so these two groups are constantly at war with one another. And there's a lot of people in the middle who don't want to take a side or, or only lean slightly one way or the other, who don't know what they want to do. But these two groups have the biggest megaphones and their war with each other continues. And Obama didn't, that didn't go away with Obama, which tells us that unless we intentionally do take steps away from this ongoing struggle, that the racial struggle we have in our society is just gonna continue. So we're just gonna have what we had before and if anything, it's gonna get worse. You wrote, the path of mutual accountability is capable of leading us out of our current cycle because it focuses not purely on winning the argument. It is an atmosphere of collaborative communication. We work together to find solutions we accept. We break the cycle because we learn we cannot have everything. Take us a little deeper into this concept of mutual accountability. Yes, thanks for asking that. What I mean by mutual accountability is that everyone's accountable for having a healthy, productive conversation. One of which we try to learn from each other, find ways of communicating with each other, and try to find compromises where we can all live with. Well, I don't, I want to be clear at the beginning, I'm not saying mutual that we'll all have the same responsibilities and whatever the solution is going to be. And in fact, given our racial history, it is unlikely that on a lot of issues, we're going to have the same responsibilities. But we all have the responsibilities to have that conversation. Now, why is that important? Here's what we know. What if you want to persuade someone? do something. Because that's what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to persuade people either to ignore race if you're into colorblindness or to engage in an anti-racist perspective, whether that's white fragility, whether that's, you know, Kindy's model. How do you persuade people? What research says is the way you persuade people is you actually build connections, build rapport with them. You understand where they come from. You, you, you find what you agree upon. You admit when they are right about something. You develop relationship community, and that is persuasion. What we do now, the way we try to sometimes shame people into compliance, the way we sometimes try to pressure people, protest. And by the way, we see this on both sides, right? So when I today protest, I don't just mean progressives. Look at the school boards. Look at the conservative protests. So I mean, both sides are doing this we engage in that, that doesn't change people's perspectives. You may get them to comply for a little while until they get enough power and then they're gonna resist you. What I wanna see, which is gonna take some time to build, is a longer term solution that we can walk together in community rather than the types of polarization that we've seen develop over the past few years, over the past couple of decades. That's what mutual accountability is about. It's about how do we have a, a healthy conversation to find solutions, a collaborative conversation, collaborative, which is goal-oriented, which is deliberate, 
and understanding and, under, and bringing everyone's interest into play so we can find solutions. These are the things that we need to start doing. And once again, it's not going to be overnight. It's not going to be an immediate political victory. But doing things this way, I believe, can produce a more sustainable, long-lasting solution than the way we have been doing things. We're going to come back to you know, portions of, of some of the things you just said um, in a few moments. But how do, how do we talk about mutual accountability theologically? <clears throat> yes. So... In my book, I really want to devote one chapter to the theological aspect of it, but in some immune ways, it's the most important aspect for me. I want to devote one chapter because I want this to be a book you can give to your non-Christian friend and say, hey, just skip chapter six, okay? And you read the rest of it, and, and, and that's fine. But there is a point theological component, and that is this. What is the nature of humans? Is the nature of humans perfectible, or is the nature of humans... Uh, what we Christians call human depravity. When you look at secular ideologies, the, the, just the notion of humans as perfectible, there is a notion of the, the worthiness of humans, how we've evolved to the state of perfectibility, how we can create better societies because of our, our abilities, our reason. So there's a high view of humans. Christians also have a high view of humans, but for a different reason. We have a high view of humans because God has created us, that we are an image of God. We, we are image bearers of the most holy, the most high. That creates a high image. Where we differ from our more humanist friends is that we also acknowledge that human depravity is part of our makeup. So we are both at the same time image of God, you know, an image bearer and a person who is depraved, what implications does that have? Here's the implication that I think is missing when we, when we look at the more secular ideologies. What's missing is when you have depravity, you cannot have full trust that you can produce a solution on your own. If I did not feel like I had human depravity, then I might think that, you know what, I can figure it all out. And I can figure it all out without help from other people. Maybe I read some of their books, but I can eventually do that. And once I figure out the solution, my job is to make sure you accept my solution. I think as Christians, we should have a, a certain amount of humbleness towards having the confidence that we have figured it all out. I need to learn from listening to others, listening in a real way listen in a way where I understand where they're coming from, even if I don't agree where they're coming from. Because they may have pieces of the solution that I'm missing, and I like to think I have pieces that they may be missing. And then we can work together. If we have human depravity, we're not so confident that the solutions that we develop won't in some ways be selfish, help us and our group at the expense of others. To me, this is a big difference. If we believe that we have the solution, it is okay to impose that solution on others. If we believe that we have to work out the solution in the context of other parties, then it is wrong for me to impose my solution on others. It is right for me to work with others to find the right solution. So I mean, this is a tremendous difference in outlook 
due to what I see is a Christian understanding of the nature of humans as being, yes, a, a, a glorious image bearer of God, but also someone who struggles with depravity. And that's why I think that we offer something that's not seen to the rest of the world. It would be amazing if all Christians um, saw the theological implications behind this, but more importantly, the theological implications around uh, racism, you know, and, and yet we, we continue to see denominations that instead of owning the past, uh, they continue to resist it and to be blind to it, which, you know, is a microcosm of the rest of the United States, you know, an honest assessment of our past helps us see the reality of our present. Um, you wrote that residential segregation is a common story in the history of people of color and did not happen by accident. Governmental policies inhibited people of color from obtaining homes and integrated neighborhoods. Social customs discourage people of color from, from living among whites. And this is just one piece of, of history that you have plucked out. Why, why do you think most people don't want to have, a, have an honest conversation about the past? You know, the past is very painful. And it is hard for people to acknowledge that pain oftentimes. Not everyone, but oftentimes. I do think depravity worked its way in, that we'd rather just solve the problem and not worry about the pain and not take into account the pain because that may cost us something. So I think that, that this is a, an example of how human depravity can distort the conversation. I know that when I talk to many of my more conservative friends, that they, that they will argue that, yes, we did have a painful racial past, but that we've overcome it. I, that's why we have to find ways to show that we've not fully overcome it, while acknowledging that we no longer live in Jim Crow. So to be honest, I, I am critical of many of individuals who try to dismiss the past and say, look, just ignore the past, and this is live for today and today, we have the rules and laws and we're free. So I am critical of that. I'm also critical of people who want to take the images of the past and superimpose them on today in ways that I think sometimes are meant to shame others uh, using terminology such as white supremacy, which I, I realize that in academic circles, it doesn't mean the exact same thing that most people think of it, but that's exactly the point. I know people think they want to use that term that they mean, that I mean, you know, KKK members and skinheads, and, and they say that I'm accusing them of beating that, then I'm not gonna use that term. Because for me, it's more important that I can have the conversation in a way that a person can hear me than to use a term that I know is very off-putting. So I acknowledge that we don't have what we had in the past today. But I also acknowledge that the past helped to shape today. So there are different challenges today that we have to confront. And confronting that challenge, I think it's going to take voices from many different sectors in our society, working it out. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff 
to focus on your ministry. CVB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. You raised a good point, which I think for most people, they've been resistant to the conversation on race and racism in America. They don't believe themselves to be racist, um, nor supporting of racist ideas. And I genuinely believe that these people feel their character is being attacked and they're being lumped in with extremist groups within our culture. And so people shut their ears off. They push away having, you know, um, having pushed for having critical race theory banned in public schools and they encircle into their tribe um, whenever you sometimes bring up some of these terminologies. So how do we how do we cut through that hard shell to have an honest conversation when people aren't willing to be honest with themselves out of desire, maybe not to feel guilty or to be associated with anything negative? Yeah, so having the hard conversation. You know, first thing I have to acknowledge, and this has taken me a while to learn that, is not everyone's going for that hard conversation. And so sometimes I've learned to just let someone be who they are. You know, say, so I'll, I'll pray for you, I love you, and then move on. So sometimes you have to do that. Uh, but I find that we can reach more people than we think if we talk to them the way they can hear us. So we have to listen first. I think the Bible says something about that. Listen first, hear them out. And so now we can talk to them in ways they can hear us. Research shows that if a person feels threatened by what they're hearing, they shut down and they literally cannot hear you. So I have to find a way that I can talk to someone that's not immediately threatening that shuts them down. So one of the things that I used, one of the points I used to use when I gave talks, I've been giving these talks for a long time. One of the points I used to use when I was talking in front of a conservative white audience was some research that I had just done. This was like 15 years ago, I think. Some research I had just done, I used some online dating advertisements, and I informed that white audience that your average white Christian who goes to church on a regular basis cares more about the race of who he or she dates than the faith of who he or she dates. And I have the research to back this up. You see, that caught their attention because that hits them right where they live. That hits them, I listened to them enough to know First off, that most of those people were not overt racists. They were not people who, who 
thought of me as a lesser person because I'm an African-American. But second, they really didn't understand what the, what the big buzz was about. How is it really affecting them? So I gave them a way it was affecting them, that their son or daughter may marry a non-Christian white person because they're turned off from a Christian person of color. When I did use that, I had their attention from that point forward. And so when I talked about institutional racial problems after that, they were interested. Because all of a sudden, I invite them in by talking to them in a way that they can hear me. I know that when I started off my talk by talk, saying how these people were participating in a white supremacist race, racist society. And even though they may not intend to be racist, their participation in, you know, continues that racism. They have heard racism, turned off, and not heard me. So I say, what's more important? Did I use certain words that people feel good about using or that I actually reach people? And until we care more about reaching people, then we're not gonna reach people. That, that's pretty obvious. We're only gonna reach people who already agree with us or are close to agree with us. And I want us to do more. And so that's why I, I encourage people to listen to others, figure out ways to talk to them in ways they can hear you, and then engage in the conversation. So I look at the political, social, economic, and religious discord in, in this country, the, the countless talking heads that quite literally talk over each other on news networks, the, the polarizing legislation taking place in more conservative states. And I just can't imagine people sitting down and having a healthy conversation with those who think differently. So uh, I'm a skeptic. How do we do this? How do we create healthy spaces for conversation, especially with sure. people that, that think differently than us? Okay, so you have to set aside some ground rules, right? Because the way we have been talking uh, just doesn't work. And I had a friend point out, you know, we've not, we've not done a good job at, uh, and on all sides. Let me just say it's all sides. I'm not going to lay this on just conservative. I don't think the progressive has done a good job on teaching people how to talk and listen to each other, right? So was active listening. So I, I, I talked to people in the book, I talked about what is active listening and, and, and what sorts of principles. Uh, I give advice on how to communicate. We need to do maybe some training or some practicing. Uh, maybe we need to practice our active listening, uh, invite a person out for a lunch or a coffee and just listen to them even though you disagree with them and understand where they come from and can you articulate what, the, what they believe in your own words, the way they say yes. That is what I believe. We need, we, we have to be intentional about doing these with us because they, they don't come natural. Creating a space, I think that organizations can create space by having people come in who are, who are willing to help train people in how to engage in active listening and productive communication and, and changing the sort of way we do things. We have to be deliberate. The organization has to be upfront. We have to create rules of engagement so that I'm not allowed to question your, your motives if, if, I'm, if I'm discussing your ideas. No, I'm, I'm not allowed to, to insult you from discussing your ideas. So we have to do this. Now, we can't, it can be done. And I'll tell you, one of the ways Christians do this is Christians know when they go out and they share their faith. We don't go out and share our faith. I mean, there are a few people who do, and we tend to reject them. We don't go out and share their faith, or share faith by saying how horrible people are from the very beginning. 
you know, that you're a sinner and you're condemned, stuff like that. We may get to that point where we share our faith by developing friendships, by developing rapport, by understanding where people are coming from. And if you talk to people who do evangelism, that's what they do. We could do some similar things with race if we want to. But yes, we've got to create the atmosphere. We've got to have the rules ahead of time. And we've got to start training ourselves to, to engage differently. But one last thing. Uh, social media is probably not the best place for this. Uh, you know, I, I would love to be able to do this on social media more. I have found for myself that it's hard for me to engage in this way on social media because of just the nature of the creature that people will, will you know, you're, you're talking for an audience and people will come in and, and, uh, and so I find myself, I engage a lot less on social media than I used to because I found that my engagement on social media has not been productive. And God's worked with me on that. And God's worked with me on the way I treat people on social media. So I, I'm still an unfinished product on that. So if you go to my, to my uh, social media and see, hey, you know, he's not, he's not saying what he did on social media. Yeah, I'm still working in progress, but I've, I have gotten better. Well, whenever you figure out perfection on every area of your life, let me know. I'm sure uh, somebody, you know, a thousand people in my life would love to line up to hand that book to me. So, <laughs> um, you know, one of the fascinating chapters of the book is about why anti-racism fails. And you were talking about this earlier. You wrote that group interest is not limited to whites. People of color are also likely to support ideas and actions that serve them and the people in their racial groups. One reason anti-racism is so attractive to people of color is that it focuses so intently on addressing their racialized struggles. So it sounds to me that you're trying to find um, a middle way here, you know, seeing the extremes to both sides and it seems to be a, a middle way. So what would you say that middle way is? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because I've I've heard I've heard myself conceptualized as a middle way before. I don't think it was a third way that's distinctive. Uh, you know, rather than, than in the middle. And you know, my critique of anti-racism. You know, let me make it clear that my critique of anti-racism would not be the way it is if there wasn't research backing it up. And in my book, I I cite a lot of research that a lot of the things that anti-racism says should work actually do not work. And so. If it's not working, then we should, we should stop doing it. Whereas I think my approach, while not directly on racial issues in other venues, has been shown to be effective. And so we have to figure out how we can make it work, how we make it effective on, in the racial areas. So I just want to be clear about that. And I'd be happy to unpack some of that if you want. But the research really does show that these sort of approaches are not that effective in, in anti-racism. And the reason why I say it's a third way is that Someone may think, you know, colorblindness and anti-racism, you know, just one dimension. Colorblindness is, you know, don't talk about race very much. Anti-racism is talk about race a lot. So a third way, a middle way may be, we'll talk about race a little bit. Uh, I, uh, I think of it more as a third way, and I think I've already identified why I see this as distinctive from both, is that I think in both of these other ways, the goal is, is to convince other people to adopt your program 100%. And I, 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 you know, I don't think you can get away from that when you read the books on anti-racism. The idea is people need to adopt what we're saying. Uh, and there's not a lot of wiggle room when you read these books. And, and maybe, maybe someone could point out a book where there's more wiggle room, but the ones I read, more pop ones, didn't show that. Uh, and the same thing with the colorblind. You know, if you acknowledge race at all, you know, if, if I 
I've had people tell me I should not raise my kids to be good black men, just be good men. Uh, and you know, I should ignore race completely, even when raising my kids. So there's no wiggle room. My approach is there's wiggle room as long as we, the wiggle room comes from us respecting and dialoguing with one another. And to give you an example, when I wrote my book, Beyond Russia Gridlock uh, in 2006, one of the things approach was the idea of reparations, which I thought was not a workable idea because I thought that that would create, and there's reasons to believe this, that that would create a lot of backlash and resentment and would actually worsen those relations. Today, I don't say that. Today I say reparations can be part of the solution, but it has to be done not by imposing reparations, which I think would bring all those negative consequences. But in dialogue, we may come to the conclusion that part of what we need is reparations. And in that sense, reparations takes on a whole new meaning. It's not, hey, we're getting back at you, which is how a lot of people interpret that, rightly or wrongly. It's we recognize that these problems have developed, and as part of a more global solution, this is going to be part of it. And so that reparations that would come with perhaps other mechanisms that would help create more of a sense of fairness across racial groups. This to me is a, is a distinctive pattern that is not just in the middle between colorblindness and anti-racism, because solutions may turn out to be more colorblind or more anti-racist, even, even as they're negotiated. And that's fine, as long as they're negotiated. So I'm not interested in being in the middle. I'm interested in finding solutions that we can live with, work with, and thrive together with. That's where my interest lies. As you, as you laid out in the book, uh, so many of our communities are racially divided by both governmental and society. Um, you know, that racism that exists there. Most, most neighborhoods are not racially diverse. And yet one of the most powerful aspects of this book is the call to cultivate a mutual accountability lifestyle. So, so how do we do that? Yeah, you know, I think that's a day by day, a week by week, month by month effort. And, you know, in my book, I talk about some of the steps that you have to think about. So, you know, like the most basic step, if you don't have a lot of friends of different races, then you cannot have mutual accountability lifestyle because you're not around people of different races in order to interact with. But obviously that's not enough. We have to be willing to engage in the conversations. Uh, we have to constantly check ourselves, check our own arrogance uh, and, and our overconfidence that, uh, that we have all the answers. You know, I, I think it is something that we have, to, I think it's like a Christian walk in some ways. I'm not saying it's as important as a Christian walk, but it's like a Christian walk in that's a day by day, week by week uh, element that we develop. You know, one of the things I struggle with is how do I incorporate this in areas of my life beyond race? Can I be, can I be more willing to be an active listener in my marriage, in my relationship with my kids, in my work with my family, in my relationship with my friends, with at work? You know, I, I'm wondering if this could this be something that blossoms out from race into other areas of my life because I know it'll make me a better person, a better friend, a better worker, a better family member, a better husband, a better father. Uh, you know, I, I want this to sort of be something that I, I become, but, I'll, but I'd also know I'll never get there until this, this side of heaven. So, it's, so in some ways, it's a type of sanctification. And maybe churches should look at it that way. Maybe churches should look at how uh, we can uh, be more open 
uh, in communicating with others and to, uh, to uh, learn uh, where others are coming from rather than dictating to others. Maybe that's something that we could work on as well. So I know that we have clergy and congregational leaders listening to this, uh, you know, among our, our greater audience. Um, how do they tackle this on the local level? How do they implement what you've laid out in the book into their local churches? Yeah, I think for the local church, you have to start, you know, I would start within my own church. You know, if I was a, if I was a clergy, I would start within my own church before I start trying to go out to the community. And I think you just start preaching about, you know, some of these values I'm talking about. And, and, you know, trying to learn how to teach people more about how to engage in this thing. And probably as, if I was a pastor, I'd talk about it, you know, probably as a lifestyle through other dimensions of life, but, you know, concentrate on, on the Russian dimension. And I think once a clergy got his or her congregation to a, to a level of comfort, then maybe you start seeking out ways of engaging with other congregations or with other community members or things of this nature. You know, I've never been a pastor, so I, I don't know exactly all the challenges. I, I have friends who are pastors, and I know that is a very challenging job. And for me, it doesn't feel like it's one more thing. But, you know, if the Christian church begins to offer answers to race, it's not seeing the rest of the world. In a post-Christian world, imagine what that would mean. Imagine the sort of witness that would be. So I think it's, it's worth the effort to, uh, to do that. One thing my pastor has done is he has, uh, he's preaches about, engaging with each other in with clarity and charity. And we also have, uh, well, we have had, I'm not sure what, COVID may have messed it up. I'm sure COVID messed it up. We used to have these weekly racial reconciliation type meetings. I forgot the exact term for it, where we would have conversations. And so there are things like that you can do as well. I think one of the challenges, uh, and we've kind of discussed this in this uh, interview is that our congregations are are diverse theologically, politically, socially, and the challenge nowadays uh, versus you know say for example like some sort of institutional organization where you can just implement uh, certain policies or create um, obligatory opportunities for conversations. Our churches are in this place right now where people are just kind of like, hey, look, uh, you know, if I don't agree with you, I'm just going to leave and go find another church that exactly fits into my tribe. And, and, and so I think it's it's a unique challenge that pastors find themselves in. And I don't say that, you know, as a local church pastor myself, um, in which we try to find that third way, as, as you have talked about, in which we can recognize that we're all in different places here. But what matters is that we're willing to come together to have a conversation. We're willing to come together and form, um, you know, beloved community together. And we're not going to get it right. It's not going to be perfect um, in a matter of weeks and days. Um, it's going to take time to do that. Um, but I think if we can commit to that, something beautiful and holistic can take place in the church. Really, can be that beacon on the hill. Yeah, I, I agree, and. I think there's, you know, I think what you want is people who have the attitude of, I don't agree with you 100%, but I'll walk with you, and I'll work things out with you, you know, and I, you know, I'm willing to walk with people who are very conservative and very progressive on along these issues, if they're willing to, to come at it with an attitude of, you know, maybe we can learn from each other, uh, you know, the, the person who does not want to learn, uh, and has to have it their way that's the person that's going to ruin this and so 
and I know it's easy for me to say because I'm not a pastor. And my my, my salary doesn't depend on people being in the church. But if that person walks away, then that person walks away from my point of view. I think there's a lot of people out there, though, who who are tired of both of the other methods and seeing that they both don't work. And so I think that there is there is a market for church to gather people who really would want to engage in the conversation if if we approach them the right way. And so uh, so yeah, so a church may have to accept some people are gonna they're gonna lose some people. But wouldn't a church do that if the issue was important enough anyways? I mean it seems to me that a church would do that. Uh, that all churches have certain parameters. I don't care how open they are. All churches have just like all social groups have parameters by which they uh, they operate. And so with the decide, is this an important parameter that's if someone doesn't want to be here and engage in the conversation and they walk away, we're okay with that. We didn't we didn't say they had to leave, but they're gonna walk away themselves, we're okay with that. And I'm hoping more churches will be okay with that so that we can develop these conversations in our church bodies. Our guest is Dr. George Yancey. The book is Beyond Racial Division. Learn more about George's work at georgeyancey.com. George, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. We are grateful for your leadership and laying out a path to break out of our destructive racial cycle. Thank you. God bless. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK offers multiple ways to pursue theological education, helping you learn and grow in your area of ministry. Programs include a 75-hour Master of Divinity degree with concentration in BSK's areas of emphasis, including black church studies, rural ministry, and pastoral care. For ordained ministers or lay leaders alike, BSK offers nine-hour certificates in black church studies, rural ministries, and pastoral care, as well as two exploring ministry certificates for general ministry training. BSK also offers additional subject-specific training with Flourish workshops in subjects such as Introduction to Youth Ministry, Essentials in Youth Ministry, and the upcoming The Flight of the Soul of America. Now enrolling for fall 2022. Apply today at bsk.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 